So between a death and a funeral, there's a sort of like in-between time and you don't want it to last for very long because it is an in-between time. You're not officially a mourner, so it just feels awkward. So um, it's one of the reasons why we bury quickly, but we also bury quickly because we don't embalm and because we just um, see it as the most respectful way to to take care of that person so that the family then can mourn. So, and for the mourner's cottage, which would you'd be saying from the cemetery on throughout the mourning period, the mourner's cottage, even though it doesn't mention death, it's a, it actually is an affirmation of life, but it requires a minion. It requires 10 people because you say the prayer and then throughout sprinkled out throughout the prayer, people say amen, which basically means I agree and I'm here with you. And so I love this idea that you you can't do that alone. You have to be with other people at this at this time. That is Rabbi Sharon Henry. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. There are a lot of ways to remember the dead. Six weeks after 11 people were murdered by a mass shooter at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, those people were being remembered. With homemade memorials at the corner of Shady and Wilkins in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood, right outside of the synagogue where they were killed. Just two days after that shooting at Tree of Life, we got an email. Hi, Nora. My community and my neighborhood in the city that I love and grew up in, Squirrel Hill uh, in Pittsburgh, is in shock. I'm the vice president of the board for Road of Shalom, one of the synagogues just a few blocks away from the shooting that occurred at the Tree of Life congregation. And we're all in shock. This tragedy occurred in the most vibrant and diverse part of the most friendly city that I've ever had the pleasure to live in. This happened days after Tom Hanks was swimming at the Jewish Community Center just down the street filming for Mr. Rogers' movie. This was truly Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I'm writing to see if we can ask you to come speak with some of the community members to help share their stories of grief and help us to combat anti-Semitism and hate. Hope to hear from you soon. Thank you. Alex wanted us to come out, like, right away. I don't want people to go back to normal and just forget about what happened at Tree of Life because I think that now is a time for some change and I think that you're able to get stories out there that other people can't and I really wanted to meet you so I emailed you (laughs) and Alex's rabbi Rabbi Sharon Henry agreed but at that moment in late October 2018 the story of the shooting a single, male, white nationalist with an automatic rifle murdering 11 worshipers in a synagogue. That story was being covered to the point of exhaustion. Every single breaking news outlet was there, 
They were lining Shady and Wilkins streets, splashing up every single new detail, interview after interview of shocked people trying to get as close to the shooter and the scene as they could. And so we said to Alex, can you wait a few weeks and see if it still seems like a good idea? Once the breaking news teams have left, once life has returned to quote-unquote normal, if you really want us to, we'll come out. And we'll talk about what normal looks like now. Rabbi Henry is the rabbi at Rodef Shalom, the largest and oldest synagogue in Pittsburgh. It is literally just down the street from Tree of Life. Alex is a lifelong congregant at Road of Shalom and a member of the board. Neither Alex or Rabbi Henry were at the Tree of Life synagogue during the shooting. When you're thinking about the concentric circles of grief, the families of the victims are right in the center along with everyone else who was there that day for the shooting. The rings get bigger the further out you go the further you are emotionally or physically from the tragedy itself. But here's the thing about those circles of grief. It's hard to see where anyone really is. There's no telling whose boat was rocked by that ripple effect. It's a self-conscious part of grief and empathy, wanting to make sure you're not overstepping your circle, that you're staying in your lane. When we finally went to Pittsburgh and sat down with dozens of people, everyone was caught between the way they feel, which is absolutely affected by this huge act of terror, and the fact that the tragedy isn't totally theirs. Maybe it wasn't their family, their synagogue, but it was their community, their neighborhood, their people. So, in this episode, the first of three about Pittsburgh and the mass shooting at Tree of Life, we'll sit with three people in the outer rings and explore what does grief feel like there? How does it reverberate through a neighborhood, a faith community, a place where you run into people you know every time you leave your house? And who's allowed to be sad? And how sad are they allowed to be? And where's the authority who can measure out and ration the grief and make sure there's enough to go around? There isn't an authority on that because that isn't a thing, but there is Rabbi Henry. She's kind and motherly, possibly because she is a mother, and she literally gave me the coat off her back. It's a true story. I went to Pittsburgh in the middle of December with a light spring jacket And Rabbi Henry presented me with a hooded, faux fur coat that made me so warm and feel very fancy. She gave me that coat in her office, which felt like Hogwarts. And quick side note, Rabbi Henry is definitely a Hufflepuff. Anyways, when we sat down with Rabbi Henry, we started with the basics. Not of the shooting, because that seems to have been pretty well recapped by the news at this point. We start with the basics of grief in Judaism, the stages of mourning. So the mourning stages are for 
mourners, which doesn't mean that other people aren't going to feel sad, but it means that the people who are going to go through the rituals are designated mourners. Designated mourners are parents, spouses, brothers, sisters, and children, the close family. When people leave the funeral, they're mourners. And the last thing I always say at a graveside is, you've done everything that you can do for this person. You've lived with them throughout their lives. You've shared good times. You've shared bad times. You've shared yourselves with them. And you've been with them at the end of their lives, spoken about them at their funerals, accompanied them to the burial site and helped to bury them. And now our attention turns to the mourners. So that's when Shiva begins. Shiva means seven. For seven days, it's the most intense period of mourning. And traditionally what that means is people stay in their homes and people come to them to talk about what the mourners want to talk about. So if the mourner wants to talk about the weather, we talk about the weather. If the mourner wants to sit there in silence, we sit there in silence. If the mourner want to talk, wants to talk about the person who died, that's what we do. We take all of our cues from the mourner. Okay, right there. That's it. That's what we are here to do. Even though by the time we get to Pittsburgh, it's way outside of those seven days, even though we're not talking to any officially designated mourners, we are here to sit to take our cue from the grieving, and to listen. If this was the night, then how do we, how do we recognize that it's dawn and recognize that dawn doesn't happen the same place, the same time everywhere and for the same person and that kind of thing? So that's where we are now. It's like, what do we do next? What do we do next? Well, we listen to people, but first, we take a break. And we're back. We're still in Rodef Shalom Synagogue, where members of the Jewish community in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, are going to be joining us over the course of a week. For Mimi, who spent a lot of time when she was growing up hanging out in Squirrel Hill, growing up Jewish was a part of her social life, going to sleepaway camp, going to services at Rodef Shalom. We were here so much that we used to go in every room and touch everything (laughs) and play with everything. And, okay, it's the Purim Carnival. We're staying overnight, but we have nothing to do. So we're going to take our socks off and go up into the choir loft because we're not supposed to be up there. And so our sanctuary, which hopefully you guys have seen. So beautiful. It's like the inside of a jewelry box. That's that's such a good way of putting it. It's so gorgeous. Yeah. The ceiling is like, when I was a kid and I just wasn't listening to the service, I would just like lean back and look up at the ceiling. My grandpa 
it's so stereotypical, but he would kind of like fall asleep at that, you know, a really long service. And I would just kind of lean on him and look up at the ceiling because it's so pretty. And then in high school, religion just kind of faded to the background of Mimi's life. Her family got busy. She got busy. It wasn't like a big falling out with faith. It was more just a slow slide to the back burner. Because why was she doing all this stuff? I don't know. I think I just decided, like, I'm not doing this for me necessarily. I'm doing it because, like, it's a part of my family and it's just what we do. But I'm going to be different, and being a teenager means, like, rebelling. And so I just started not wanting to go to things, or I would go because my mom wanted to, but not really engaging with it. I remember thinking at services one time, I don't even know what we're saying. I can say it by heart, but I don't even know why. I gave my parents a hard time, but I wasn't going to say, like, I hate this, and I'm not going to do it. For Linda, who was born and raised in Hollywood, Florida, which is near Miami, it wasn't the slow fadeaway that marked her youthful identity search. It was whatever the opposite of a slow fadeaway is, like a quick burn, a quick turn up. Crank, crank it up. <laughs> Linda grew up in the South in Southern Florida, and her father's side of the family in Northern Florida was very quiet about their Judaism. Now, Let me just say, my teenage rebellion was becoming kosher. My brothers all grew up in the 60s. I grew up, like, in the the 70s and, you know, early 80s. And so I didn't have that kind of radical streak that my brothers did. For my teenage rebellion to have, like, you know, not been smoking pot and to have, you know, um, decided I was going to define my parents by keeping kosher and refusing to eat anything in their house unless it was kosher, mm-hmm. was, was pretty radical. Um, so when I went to Tallahassee once, too, um, we went out to dinner with my family. And I, I remember asking um, if the French fries were made in animal fat or vegetable oil, which is something I would do. And I said, because I keep kosher. And all the family started looking at each other, like, oh, my God, she just outed herself here. And, um, and my uncle, he kind of, like, whispered to my dad in that loud way that old people whisper. I'm not ever going to hear him, you know. He's like, don't worry, it's just a stage. <laughs> so everybody was really worried about this, and I didn't understand why. Linda went to college at Emory and ended up working in development in the Jewish community. So her Jewish identity was the center of her professional life and her personal life. Up until June of 2018, her husband was the executive director at Tree of Life. The two of them are a big part of the Jewish community in Pittsburgh. It was more than a job. For all those of us in the Jewish community, it's service. It's more than a job. It's more like a calling. It's like you're fortunate, you're doing something, you have a job, but you know that you're contributing to some, some good in the world or, or something that you really believe in. You don't do it for any other reason. Fast forward. Sound. That was us fast forwarding to 2016. There was a little election that year here in America. And Mimi, at this point, was a grown-up. She had graduated college. She got her master's back home in Pittsburgh. 
And now she was working in early childhood education. And that election, specifically the results, really hit Mimi hard. It really caught me off guard. I felt naive about it and very much like, okay, I don't know what to do. And I'm supposed to be the adult. And where do I go to process this? How do I figure out where to go from here? And we were at a high holiday service this year in September. And we have beautiful music at our synagogue. We have a choir. We have uh, musicians that come to sing a quartet. And our rabbi was giving a sermon about, you know, the importance of engaging in the community and not just the Jewish community, but the whole community. And I just kind of had a moment where I was just like, yep, he's right. It's time. Participate, engage. You're an adult. It's your decision. And I love to sing. Um, And I'm an okay singer, and I turned to my dad at the end of the service, and he said to me, you have a really lovely voice, you should join the choir. And I said, yeah, I think I will. And he looked at me like, really, are you? I was just kind of giving you a compliment, and I was like, no, I think it's time, I think I'm gonna join the choir. And I did. That's her, actually, somewhere in that choir. Last September was good for Mimi. And then, as it always does, September slides into October, early October becomes late October, and on Saturday, October 27th, the news starts. Tree of Life Synagogue, shooting, confirmed dead. I don't know who those dead people are, and I know that I'm going to know every single one of them. And I don't want my husband to go home and find out who they were alone. You know, he knew where people used to sit, and and Cecil was was one of the two um, special needs men he was very close with. Cecil was the, the outgoing one, if you've heard the stories about them. And he would sit next to us in synagogue. He would, uh, he would say to me, you know, things like, well, he couldn't read. He would say, what's the page number? And I would hand him my prayer book and I'd take his. And then like five minutes later, what in that page are we on? <laughs> I'd switch back. And every morning he came in to see my husband put on his pinky finger. And they linked fingers. And he would say, BFFs. And Joel would say, BFFs. And he was the warmest, kindest guy. He didn't even know what the word hate meant. And um, he was so affectionate and so sweet. And Joel kept saying, I know Cecil's gone. I know Cecil's gone. He knew it because if Cecil were there, he would have been standing in the doorway and he would probably have seen a new person and he would have probably gone over to say hello and welcome him. Cecil Rosenthal his brother, David Rosenthal, Bernice and Sylvan Simon, married, Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irving Younger.
We'll be right back. We're back. So will you tell us your name? Sophia. Pardon? Sophia. Sophia, as you may have strained to hear, is soft-spoken. When we talked, she mostly talked to the ceiling. Even her tears were quiet. I mean, okay, tears are always quiet, but the crying itself, mine at least, is very, very loud. I am a, I'm a very audible crier, not Sophia. Sophia is also 15 years old. She's Jewish. She was raised in Squirrel Hill. She went to school there at a Jewish day school up until high school. And now in high school, she attends a private school in the suburbs. And in October, she wasn't very comfortable there yet. Sophia spent the weekend of the shooting in Squirrel Hill with her family, grieving, just generally being shocked. And then Monday came and she had to go back to school. So I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. How do you know what to expect the day after a shooting that affects your community? Like, like even on the bus, it was so hard because I was like thinking about it and I was alone. And So, like, I thank God for my phone. Like, I could still reach out to, like, my family and my friends. And then I got off the bus, and I went to first period. And the flag was lowered. And I was like, yes. And I went to first period, and no one said anything about it. People were laughing, like, talking. And I, like, couldn't think about school like I mean it was kind of hurtful in a sense because it seemed a bit disrespectful to the people who lost their lives like there was no recognition and I understand that like maybe the teacher didn't feel comfortable talking about it or didn't know what the right thing to say was or didn't want people to feel like sad but there was just like no time given. And then I think I had an, another class after and it was the same. And then we had an assembly. And I went to assembly and I was like already like feeling it. Like I was crying but didn't know who to go to. So I just like Like, I sat down, and the principal came up and said, like, I understand, like, as you all have probably, like, know by now, like, the events on Saturday were terrible. They were an act of hate. And so she, like, gave that, like, that moment was, like, the first time, I think, that somebody recognized what had happened. 
in my day. And then she said, like, she doesn't know how to process and that, like, she doesn't know how the community will process and that, like, stronger than hate, things like that. And then she moved on to say that it's generally a stressful time of year because, I guess, college applications. And she reminded people to also be getting enough sleep and to be eating healthy and, like, to be balancing, like, everything that they're doing and their activities and not to be too stressed out. And it was so inappropriate in my eyes because I was like, what could be more important than a shooting, like a massacre in our own city? How could you talk about something normal so soon after? Like, it just didn't make sense to me. And then they did like a theater preview for like a play because they thought that it shouldn't like take away from like life shouldn't change like people shouldn't let an act of hate control their lives which I understand but also I think that ignoring an act of hate is saying that it's normal and like it should be accepted kind of but I also understand that and then just throughout the day, like, people would say, like, are you okay? Like, no. But I didn't want to say, talk about it. I didn't know what to say to that question. As Sophia was sitting in that assembly, Mimi was headed back to work after a weekend of Nothing, really. She did nothing. She didn't see her family. She didn't see any friends. At one point, she felt like she should do something to keep herself busy, so she set up an Etsy store for herself, which is relatable. (laughs) That's very relatable. So when Monday came and it was time to go to work, Mimi got up and headed out to the early education school where she teaches which is just blocks from Tree of Life Synagogue. And I park my car and I go to walk in the building and one of my moms in my class um, comes running down the stairs. It's a beautiful old school. It's over 100 years old. It's got these flights of stairs. And she comes running down the stairs and she's in tears. And she grabs me and she gives me this big hug. And I'm not a big hugger. So already I'm like, ah! And she's crying. And she said to me, we're new to Pittsburgh. We knew you were Jewish. We don't know where you went to synagogue. And we've been worried all weekend. And she's like sobbing. And I burst into tears. Just like the floodgates opened. Her family is Muslim. And she said, our whole community has been praying for you. My family's been praying for you. You're so important to our family. You've helped me so much with my sons. And I just didn't know what was going on. And I was so worried about you. And I was just so overwhelmed, like just in tears. And I'm like a never let them see you cry kind of person. So I kind of tried to pull myself together and I go and I walk in the building and then every person that stopped me, I just fell apart. I could not handle it because I'd spent the whole weekend alone 
and here is my community, most of whom are not Jewish. I'm the Jewish person they know. Even in Squirrel Hill, for some of our families, I'm the you know most present Jewish person in their life. I couldn't hold it together. Her boss told her to go. She didn't want the kids worried about her, but where do you go? Because I don't want to go home. That was a bad choice over the weekend, or not a productive choice. My parents are out of town, so I can't be with them. I don't want to be alone. And so I drove to synagogue because I knew it wouldn't be empty. And I knew that it would be safe. After the assembly, like, I had to call my friends because I, like, really needed someone to talk to, but, like, didn't know... I didn't feel comfortable doing that at school. And then a teacher, like, said that I should talk to her. But I just, like, didn't, like, want to. So it was, like, really uncomfortable. And it was just, like, not the setting that I wanted to be in. Um, so then, like, finally the day ended and I could go home. But then it was like the same thing the next day. And I felt like every day there was less and less recognition. Sophia had school. Mimi had work. For Linda, she had the memory of her father. On the anniversary of someone's death, it's a part of the Jewish tradition to remember those who have passed. For children of the dead especially, they're supposed to take that day, gather with at least 10 others at a synagogue to make it official, and say the Kaddish prayer to remember their parents. And it's actually not really about death, but it's a reaffirmation of faith. This is called Yartzeit. For Linda, Yartzeit for her father came just after the shooting at Tree of Life. That was the first time she had to go to synagogue. Normally, Linda would have headed out that day to Morning Minion to gather with others. She would have gone to Tree of Life. First of all, there was no Tree of Life one for me to go to, so I wasn't going to go there. And then I thought, you know, I don't really want to go. I don't really, I don't really feel like I'm ready to go back into a synagogue again. You know, I'm just not, I I just put a picture of my father and I said some nice things about my dad and I said it's the first year in whatever many years that I haven't gone, but I will say Kaddish privately to myself, whisper it privately to myself as I light the candle. Now, I could have, if I really wanted to, if I had thought about it in advance, I could have asked 10 people to come to my house and we would have had those 10 individuals because I just, it's just not safe. My father, by the way, was in, was a soldier in World War II. He was stationed in England for most of the war. He was part of, he was in the Air Force, part of the supply chain that went right into Dachau to bring supplies to the concentration camp victims. So he wasn't a liberator technically, but within two days he was there and saw some pretty horrible things. So, you know, I keep thinking, He'd understand. My father would understand why I didn't want to go to synagogue. Mimi, though, wanted to be at synagogue. 
at her synagogue. And she wasn't the only one. And my rabbi, Rabbi Henry, was in the front hall kind of greeting people. And she said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) She said, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I just need like some space or something. And she said, do you want to go in the sanctuary? And I said, yeah, I do. I want to go in the sanctuary. And she said, okay, we'll turn the lights on and we'll, you can go in there and then um, I'll come and check on you. And so that room is so warm and it, it is like being inside a box. It makes you feel safe and encompassed. Um, and I just sat down and I just kind of allowed myself to feel what I was feeling. And then Rabbi Henry came in and we had a really lovely conversation and she listened to me and I and kind of helped me talk through some of the stuff I was feeling. And I was able to what kind, kind of, of stuff. I think I was feeling a little bit of like imposter syndrome. Like, what does this have to do with me? I wasn't present. I don't go to that synagogue. I haven't been as engaged in Judaism. I also don't. A lot of people were saying to me, like, we didn't know people hate Jews so much. What's that like? And I don't think that a lot of at least for myself, I don't think a lot of Jews walk around feeling hated. And so it was kind of an uncomfortable thing to process. And I said to Rabbi Henry, I don't know why I'm so emotional. This isn't even about me. And she said, what are you talking about? Of course it's about you. (laughs) She said, you grew up here. This is your community. These are your people. And it is absolutely a part of your story. You're not an imposter in this. And I think I needed to hear that because it did feel like I was making myself a part of something that I shouldn't be a part of. And she was able to help me understand like it is relevant and it's totally understandable and it's okay to feel that way. That's a very good point. Of course it's okay to feel that way. And of course it's okay to feel that way for an indeterminate amount of time. There are traditions around mourning long past the seven days of Shiva. But that doesn't mean that mourning is over. After that first week, mourners enter Sloshim. It's a bit less intense, and it lasts for 30 days. You can go about your regular business, you can work, but you still grieve. So our community went through this period of time for Shloshim and marked it. At the end of Shloshim, there was an event that said, okay, so what comes next? And there's a healing time, but remember, healing doesn't look the same for you as it does for the person next to you, and it's not linear, and you shouldn't expect to feel better today than you did yesterday because who knows what's going to happen And just because you weren't related to any of these people doesn't mean that you're not going to feel a sense of anguish or pain. So we have to to acknowledge that that exists. That anguish and pain does still exist in so many different forms for so many different people. And we're here with Linda, with Mimi, with Sophia to just acknowledge it. Because the pain is complicated. This was just so close. It was like people I knew, and it was, and it was, 
a few months earlier, it would have been us. There's not one scenario I can go over in my head where I wouldn't have been the first dead. I know that you're interviewing some young women, some teenagers and all those kind of things. I think that, you know, if it would be me another time, I was like, I'm not going to let you know, a terrorist changed my life and make me afraid to live. I'm not going to do that. I'd be defiant. I'm thinking, but that's not what's happening with me now. This is very real to me. This is not conjecture. Or if this had happened in, like, Milwaukee. Right. Would this have? Probably not. I'm sure that I would have, you know, I would have been an activist. I would have done something. I would have signed petitions. I would have, like, you know done something about it. I wouldn't have been afraid, though. That's the difference. There's a difference between angry and afraid. I'm angry, but I am, right now, a cowering coward. (laughs) Like, I'm just thinking about, like, staying safe. And I feel that's really bad. I don't think it's really bad. I mean, I've, I've, uh, it's. Been- I mean, no, it, it, it doesn't feel good, right. and it doesn't feel good when you are a person who has always been a doer, and a person who can like make things happen. To feel like, well, now what do I do? Right. And I don't want to do anything. But when it happens to someone else, it's easier to wear the t-shirt and be like, "Yep, okay. we're going to fix it somehow," right. because you don't have to think about where everybody was sitting. But Linda will always think about it that way about what could have been, about the bullet she really did dodge without knowing it. And so will Sophia. I will never go to any services in Pittsburgh or, like, anywhere else in America and think, like, nothing. I think I'll always, like, in the back of my head, like, be wondering, like, what if it happens today? Uh, And I think, like, it'll always be a possibility. And it was a possibility before. I just never thought that it... I didn't think of it much. But there was something very different about this one. And I think that it's something that we were all worried about. Look, the shooter himself said it. He was motivated. I mean, this this fear of otherness, this fear of immigrants. The, the, the reason he said he did it was because I guess the rabbi had said something. We were doing a program to work work with helping to resettle immigrants. And therefore, we were, you know, in cahoots with George Soros, and we were, we were helping the invading caravan come from Central America. I mean, that's not conjecture. He said it. I see it as a threat to my people. I think it's scary. I mean, you don't march on Charlottesville and watch these neo-Nazis scream, blood and soil, Jews will not replace us, and say there are some very good people in that crowd shouting that. There just aren't. If you shout that, you're not a good person, period. And there's there's no discussion. One of the most recognizable instincts when someone is grieving or uncomfortable or suffering is to want to fix it. To want to make it, whatever it is, go away. And I have some ideas for where we could start, but we'll get into that on my new political podcast, Nora Hates Her Guns. But when you're like Linda, when you've dedicated your life to your community, you may feel like you're the person who's supposed to know what to do. You're the person who's supposed to be strong, the example that people look to. 
And maybe you are. Maybe, Linda, you are. Just not in the way you thought you would be. Maybe you aren't an activist, and maybe that's what will make people feel better about their own fear, about their own grief. I don't know how anybody can make me feel better about this. I think I just need to, like, put myself in situations and say, okay, like, I'm not scared right now. Like, this is okay. It's a, it's a weird feeling. But I'm getting through it. You know, it's not like I stay awake at night. It's not like I'm, you know, non-functional or anything else like that. I just, I just, I feel like this part of my life, like I was, you know, so connected to this Jewish community. It's a terrible feeling to have something like that, that you're so connected with, that's such a huge part of your life, saying, you know, I don't know that I can do that anymore. When you're struggling to make sense of your own feelings, It's nearly impossible to help someone else understand those feelings. What do you think the other kids in your school just don't understand? Somehow it came up, like, big events that people remember. And my teacher was saying how, like, 9-11 was a date that, like, everyone in her generation remembers. And she was like, I'm trying to think, what would be something your generation would remember? And I was like, "The, the the Tree of Life shooting? And she was like, yes. And I was like, what? And then a girl in my English class was like, oh, yeah, was that on a Saturday or Sunday? And I was like, okay, so people just don't get it. Because not only was it an act of gun violence and a mass shooting, but it was, like, specifically on the Jewish community on a day of worship. So Saturday, and I just feel like because it drew so much so much attention to Judaism, people could just take like a little bit of time to understand it more. Linda feels like she better understands her Southern Jewish grandparents and her father. So it wasn't that he didn't want to be Jewish. He just didn't want to announce it to anybody. It was something that he kept in his library and inside his house. I have finally forgiven my elderly relatives for being embarrassed about my being kosher because all of a sudden I realized they weren't embarrassed. They were afraid. So that was like an epiphany that I wish that I could go back and say, I'm sorry that I judged you. Rabbi Henry said that at the end of Sloshim, they held a big event for the community, that the point of the event was to think about what comes next. What comes next is whatever comes next. What I was processing in the sanctuary alone when I went to kind of calm myself down and process why I was so emotional was that this space has always been available to me, but I have cho- haven't chosen to use it. And so my memories in that space are childhood memories All my memories are so wonderful and I feel so safe here. And I was a 12 or 13 year old kid running around this place like it was my living room. What an honor that was because it's a historic place and a beautiful place and a place where for me, God really does feel present, even in the little moments where I'm being silly with my friends. And I think part of me was feeling like, okay, if this is valuable to you, if you chose to come here, 
then you're an adult and you need some adult memories in this space. You can't just sit and dwell on the old memories. You're present, so it's time to make some new ones. Maybe what comes next will be peace or anger. Maybe it will be revelatory. Maybe, as the news cycle turns out, another mass shooting and another hashtag, those circles of grief will continue to contract, which is natural and also painful and confusing because... because the things that tip your own world off its axis don't always do the same for everyone else, even if you share a city with them or a school bus with them. Talk to anybody who has experienced trauma or grief, anybody who has found themselves in one of those concentric circles. Everybody wants to make sure they're doing it right or feeling the right thing. And everyone is pretty sure they're doing it and feeling it wrong. That they're not sad enough or they're too sad. That they're too angry or they're not angry enough. There are stages of grief. There are stages of mourning. And then there's the chaos of what grief and mourning actually feel like, of trying to reconcile what you're feeling and thinking with where you fall on the chart, of being a person on this earth, living and existing among other humans who don't know what you're going through, whose community overlaps with yours in some ways, but not others with humans who don't share in your collective cultural trauma and barely even remember a day that will be stamped into your memory forever. And there isn't a stage for that. There isn't a protocol for that. Like, I wanted to talk about it because I felt like people weren't talking about it, they were ignoring it, but I didn't want to be the one that brought it into conversation. So if a teacher were to ask, like, do you guys want to talk about it or who wants to say something about it? I was always like, please, someone say something. But at the same time, I didn't know what to say. Also, because I felt like if I said something, I'd be like representing the Jewish community because like I felt it like strongly. So I didn't want to say something and people to assume that that's how everyone in Skrull Hill felt or like every Jewish person felt. And I also just didn't understand what I was feeling. So I felt like I didn't know what the right thing to say was. Do you feel like your feelings make more sense now? No.
Next week, you'll hear two stories about what was happening in other synagogues while the shooting was taking place. So we had no idea what to expect. We didn't know what type of person it was. We didn't know, like, is it American? Is it a man? Is it a woman? Is, is there more than one? Is there three places could be attacked at the same time by the same group? It's sacred. Like, literally sacred. Right? And for me... Like, that's her day. That's my daughter's day. Our senior producer is Hans Butow. Marcel Malikibu is our assistant producer. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager. We got help from Anna Weggel and Meg Martin on this episode. Thank you, friends. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. We are a production of American Public Media.